Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, the only thing I would have added is that you would pray that the Seminoles would find a defense somewhere this season. Uh, uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's my pleasure to, to stand before you this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a series uh, talking about leadership in the church because we're entering into a time or phase in the life of our church where we're going to be uh, nominating and electing and installing uh, elders and deacons to serve as leaders in our congregation for the works of uh, preaching the gospel in word and also in deed among us and in our city. So we are, we are at the very end of that sermon series. I think in many ways uh, we were talking a few minutes ago that this might be the most important because in, in talking about all the ways that we have been designed to live under the authority of leadership, that we need leaders uh, we can become overly dependent upon our leaders, or we can put too much emphasis or stock uh, in leaders and forget that we are a body of people called to all serve and love and lead and submit to one another. So we're going to be talking about spiritual maturity as it relates to it being a community project this morning from two passages. First in 1 Corinthians 12, and then in Ephesians chapter 4. They're printed for you in your worship folder. They'll also be on the screen behind me. Uh, And you can follow along there. If you'd like to take a Bible and follow along as best you can, you're more than welcome to do that as we read together from these passages this morning. Beginning in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body." The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, with which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, from First Corinthians. And then from Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, again writing to the Ephesian church, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led host, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. That's one sentence, by the way. I love Paul. He gets so excited he can't, he doesn't even bother with punctuation. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working 
properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Uh, great, great passages of scripture to remind us what the church is. And really, that's what we need to do this morning is envision what it looks like for a healthy church to be just that, a healthy church. And at the very beginning, I want to rehearse the gospel together to remind us of what it, the story that is behind everything we're going to have to say about what the church is and what it looks like and what it does. Okay? So I want to do that right here. We are here this morning in this room because the God who made heaven and earth and all of us has broken into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ to bring about salvation for us, his people, and the entire created order. We're here to celebrate this decisive work of God on our behalf. And there are all kinds of opinions out there about who God is and what he might be like and, you know, what in the world he's up to, wherever he is, but all of that is not guesswork for us if, because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and that means that we believe God himself descended, that's what Paul says, that he drew near to us, that he put on flesh and blood and he lived uh, the, among us and he walked the roads that we walked and he breathed the air that we breathed and he did this in order to make the world right again and to do away with sin and death. By offering himself in our place. The innocent for the guilty. He died for us. But we believe that the grave could not hold him. And on the third day he was raised. And after 40 days, the Bible says, he ascended back to the Father. Victorious. Paul says bringing with him... Where, where is it? Bringing with him those he had rescued from the enemy. And so when we read Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, we are to picture the triumphant Christ returning home from battle on earth into the glory of the heavenly city with trophies of his great victory. And Ephesians 4, 8 through 10 is really quoting Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is a victory hymn composed by David to celebrate the victory that God had given him over his enemies. But Paul puts it here right in the middle of what the church understands to be true, that that Jesus, the ultimate victory of God, came through Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ has come from the Father in heaven to live the life we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. And he has gone back to the Father in heaven and is now at his right hand ruling over history to bring about his purposes in and through the church. Paul says, look there, verse 8, of Ephesians 4, that when he ascended to God, he gave gifts to men. Now, that's the phrase that we really want to concentrate on this morning. And what's interesting about it is Paul's changed the wording. He's quoting, I've said Psalm 68, and in Psalm 68, 18, we read there that that upon victory, the warrior receives gifts from men. So there's a homecoming there, and just like in any homecoming of any conquering warrior, the victor would typically receive gifts from those that he had won the victory for, but not Jesus. Jesus is a different kind of king, he's a different kind of lord, and Paul says when he returns home victorious, he doesn't receive gifts, he gives them. Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus celebrates his victory. Not by receiving gifts from those he has rescued, but by giving them to the very ones he's rescued. He celebrates his victory with generosity. And I've just got to say, I wonder at that. And here's what we're to learn, that Jesus came on a rescue mission. And even though he's no longer here, his mission continues through the life and work of his people and to help us and to provide for us in our weakness and to outfit us for the battle. 
He sent the Spirit from heaven to come and live in us. And so if you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, I hope this will help you understand what we believe. If you, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you. The very person of Jesus Christ living out His life and mission through you. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, He empowers the church for the mission, we're told, specifically by giving each member gifts. And these gifts are to be used to strengthen the rest of the church toward the corporate witness of Jesus Christ in the world. And so, if you're here this morning, and your faith is in Christ Jesus, that means that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, and He's empowering you in some unique, specific way to carry out Jesus' mission in the city He's called you to. And here, here's where we have to start thinking differently, because we're so individualistic, we automatically think that these spiritual gifts, these, you know, in both 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, these gifts that Paul talks about, we, we assume that they are gifts that are to be ours, to be used as we desire, but that's not right. If you look there very carefully in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, biblically an individual spiritual gift is for the common good, or in Ephesians 4, for the building up of the church. And that means that our individual gifts don't belong to us, they belong to the rest of the church. I mean, I, I believe this. My gifts, you know, as meager as they may be, of preaching and teaching and leadership or whatever, whatever it might be that God has particularly gifted me in, my gifts don't belong to me, they belong to you. They were given to me by God for your sake, and I can't claim ownership over them. They're gifts. And I can't use them however I want to or stubbornly refuse to use them because they belong to all of you. I am a steward of the gifts that God has put into my heart and my life, a steward to God and a steward to you of those gifts. They were given to me for your sake. That's what the Bible is trying to teach us here. And if I were to keep them to myself or refuse to use them to help you, then, then very clearly I would be sinning not only against God but against all of you. And if I were to use them for selfish reasons or selfish gain and not to love and to serve, then that would be sin too. So here's where we come this morning to these passages to see that Jesus' strategy for reaching the world with the gospel is a healthy, strong, mature, and growing church. And all of the spiritual gifts he's empowered us with, each of us, are not for the sake of our individual ministries, but for the sake of seeing the church corporately grow and work properly, Ephesians 6.14. So that's what we need to go after this morning. Jesus' strategy for, the wor- for reaching the world with the gospel is a healthy church. So three things. What does a healthy church look like, first? Secondly, who does what to get there? So what are the roles? So what is a healthy church? Who does what to get there? And then thirdly, how does the gospel make it possible? That's what we want to talk about this morning in the little bit of time we have together. So let's just start. By just asking this question, what does a healthy church look like? And, and, and how, how is that what God is calling us to in these passages, okay? So let's talk about that. Now, the mission of the church is to represent Jesus Christ to the world. That's what the body metaphor there in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 is really getting at. Jesus is not here. Has anybody seen him this week? If you did, you wouldn't raise your hand anyway, right? I see. You know, he's not here. So the only, therefore, if that's true, then the only way for people to get to know him is to see him in us. You understand? I mean, to, to experience his power in the way his power is working in our relationships with one another. To see his beauty in our, you know, life together. Or the beauty of his humility in our humility. To glimpse his heart of compassion in the compassion we show for one another in our city. People who don't know Jesus can only come to know him through what they see and experience of him in us. 
They learn his love and our love, his sacrifice through our sacrifice. You know, they see his cross through our cross. Now, individually, we are incomplete representations of Jesus. But together, uh, we make a whole person. Let me say that again. Individually, as marvelous as so many of you are, individually, we are incomplete representations of him. But together, we make a whole person. And to illustrate this, take marriage as an, an analogy. And Ashley's not here. She's over there working with the kids, but... It, even if she were here, I think I could say these things. You know, Ashley and I are a great fit for one another because we are so different and complementary. Uh, I am task-oriented. I get aggravated when people get in the way of whatever project I'm involved in, right? She actually likes people. <laughs> uh, and while she doesn't get stuff done as quickly as I do, she makes people cared for. It makes people feel cared for, and that's a good thing. I, I can be lazy. Uh, she works way too hard. And so she's taught me that laziness is selfish, and I'm still trying to teach her to relax. <laughs> right? You see, you see I mean, you all, you all could do this. Where I am weak, she's strong, and vice versa. And both of us would be terribly dysfunctional on our own. Uh, and I would be downright scary. But together, somehow, together in God's wisdom, we uh, make a whole person. And it's the same idea, that it's impossible for a single person to faithfully represent Christ. But that's what the body does when it's built up. That word built up there in those verses means to strengthen or to, um, or to be healthy. It refers to a house or a piece of architecture that, that's built that others can look at or they can go inside, you know, if you've ever toured you know, an old church or whatever and look around and just marvel at the beauty of the construction or the, you know, and think, wow, who was the person? I mean, who came up with this? And how did they get it done? That's, that, that's what that word is. And Paul likes this metaphor of the church being a house or a building, you know. But it's not a building as in brick or stone or shingles or tile. It refers to the tangible, physical representation of the invisible Christ. So when people come into the church, they can look around and see all the beauty and the detail and the marvel and the wisdom and the grace of Jesus. That's what we're building. That's that's what the Spirit's doing. As we are being built, you know, strengthened and built together. That's why we need one another to see that work done. Now, four indications of health in a church that I just want to, like, bullet points, bam, 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 in this passage. In Ephesians uh, 4.13, I want you to see there are four indications of what it looks like to be a healthy church. And I just want to get this vision out there for us so we can see it. The first is just this. Uh, the first of these indications is unity. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul says that the building up of the body leads to, look there, the unity of faith. The book of Acts describes the first generation of the church as being, Acts 4.32, of one heart and soul. As being together, Acts 4, and having all things in common. And Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, tells them, he says, he gives them these instructions. He tells tells them, agree wholeheartedly with one another, love one another, and work together with one heart and purpose. So there's a unity, right? There's a oneness. Each individual has a mission, but that mission is shaped and molded by the vision and the priorities and the needs of the larger community. And the goals and the values, you know, and the needs of the community are always more important than the, and more defining than those of the individual. That's not to say the individual is not important but that the individual finds his identity and purpose within the community. There's a deep oneness, a shared mission and calling. You know, we're all headed for the same horizon. We're all on the same road. We're headed to the same destination. We're not, you know, playing tug-of-war against one another. We're all pulling 
together against the enemy. So unity. Second uh, indication, just to kind of get it out there, is theological robustness. If you keep going in that verse 13, Paul goes on to say that the building up of the body leads to the knowledge of the Son of God. And that just refers to knowing the truths about the person and work of Jesus. You know, being able to articulate, being able to explain the idea of the incarnation and what the cross means and, and concepts like justification and adoption and propitiation and all these great theological terminologies and, and you know, the practical significance of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension into heaven and what it means for him to be a prophet, priest, and king over us. These are not just abstract theological ideas. They are the essence and content of our faith. And a sign of spiritual maturity and health is that we be a people who think well, who do good theology, who know the scriptures and the doctrines of our faith. And this is a denominational distinctive, but it's not just a denominational value. It is absolutely essential to our health and vitality as a church. Thirdly, third indication of a healthy church. What Paul refers to here as, verse 13, mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, is just a compelling Christ-likeness. Paul means that a healthy church will look like Jesus. We, we will look like Jesus. We are, after all, his body. We are his hands and feet. We are the physical, tangible representation of Christ in the world. And so a compelling Christ-likeness in fourth is just that there, there's this fortitude that he describes. And I love that word, fortitude. It's one of my favorite words because it refers to courage under adversity or pain. And I love it because I have none of it. Uh, and I constantly pray that God would do that in me. And if you see, Paul's saying if there's spiritual health, it will make us a people. Look there, verse, verses 13 and 14. When the rains come and the winds come, right? In other words, when the storms come, we won't fall apart. We won't be heaved to and fro and begin to break apart. There will be a strength and a solidness about us that even when it gets really hard, we won't be put off the work. That we'll endure through all the trials. See, that's... Those, that's what it means for us to be a church built up, that we're, we're one, that we possess a theological robustness, that there's a compelling Christ-likeness, and there's a, a fortitude that can withstand the trials and temptations that come. And so I so desperately want us to be a church like that. So how does that happen? How does that happen? And I want you to zone in on this verse in Ephesians 4, verse 12. Because there in verse 12 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, and if you follow his logic backwards, he says that the body is built up through works of ministry. Do you see that there? To equip the saints for works of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So the building up of the body happens through works of ministry. And here is where the surprise comes. Notice there, it is not the apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers doing these works of ministry. It is the saints, the church, the body, each individual putting to use the gifts and talents and passions and resources God's graced them with. You see that? Look closely at Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Jesus, we're told, has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, I like shepherds and teachers to the church. And these are typically understood as the category, you know, we would call them professional Christians, right? They are the leaders, the pastors and elders in the church who are Christians for a living or who have established leadership roles in the church. But notice their job is not to do the work of ministry. Do you see that? They have a specific role within the body, and that is, we're told there, to equip. That word means to prepare, to train, or to outfit, to qualify. They equip the rest of the body, for the work of ministry. Shepherds and teachers don't build up the body. The body builds itself up 
when each part, including the pastors and the teachers, are functioning properly. Do you understand the difference? So the greatest threat, and this is, I'm taking my life in my own hands saying this, but the greatest threat, I think one of the things that has caught Western Christianity and made it weak, the greatest threat to the church doing this is to have full-time paid staff like me. Because it's so easy to think that, you know, Jonathan and I and the other people that you pay are there to do the work for the rest of the church rather than that we are here to equip and to disciple and to prepare the church for the work. But Paul says works of ministry belong to the body. Not through the ministry of pastors and leaders, but as each part works together properly, Ephesians 4.16. It's the norm in Christian circles these days to build big churches around the personality of the pastor, and that's the worst possible scenario. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen because it short-circuits the entire process. And that's why churches have no vitality, no robust spiritual maturity within the ranks, because it's all about the pastor or the staff or whatever. It's the worst thing that could happen. And so how do we get there? How do we, how do we then, what are the practical steps we have to take to, uh, to get this work done and to make this change that we're being called to? And there are three things that I just want to work through quickly and then wrap up with just some gospel application. But first, we need to change our thinking and our expectations accordingly. Okay? For, we need to change our expectations and our thinking. Our thinking and our expectations accordingly. Here's what I mean by that. If what Paul is saying is true, then for me to be faithful, and I'll just talk about me, okay? I Talk about me. Because that's the easiest thing. I have lots of material about me. Right? If it's true, <clears throat> then for me to be faithful, I have to do my job and refuse to do your job for you. Now, if you're a long, lifelong church person, that might sound weird. Because pastors generally... Can I just give you insight into pastors for just a minute? Pastors generally become pastors because they have a Messiah complex and they love to rescue people. Did I hear... I hope I didn't hear any of I think somebody amen that, but anyway. Man. And the reason they love to rescue people, do you know why they love to rescue people? They love to be there for people. The reason they do that is because people generally love them for that. And I just need to say, that's not my job. It's my duty as a follower of Jesus Christ and as a member of the church of Jesus to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep and comfort and show compassion and be a good friend and visit the sick and all those things. And in that sense, I'm no different than any person in this room. I don't do those things because I'm a pastor. I do them because I'm a follower of Jesus and he commands me to do them, but he commands every single one of us to do those things. It's not my job to do those things. It's my job to teach and preach and equip and disciple and train and confront and encourage until we are formed as a community skilled and committed to doing the work of ministry. And if you really want to, if you really want to agitate me, here's all you got to do. You ready? When you're ready to just zing me or get me, here's what you need to do. Come into my office and say something like this. I just want to know what you're doing about. Or, or this. I love this. Well, what does the church do for, and, and how I'm going to answer this, I don't know. You're the church. You tell me. What does the church, tell me. I mean, you know, the church is not me. The church is us. What are we doing? Do you see what I'm saying? 
And I have people who come to me all the time and, with, and, and ask what they can do to help me. But you see, this is the wrong question. The question is not how can you help me. The question is how can I help you. It's a different dynamic. The work of ministry is yours. It's my job to get you ready for it. Same thing. People come to Jonathan and I and they want to know, well, what's our vision as a church? But that's the wrong question. The, the wrong, whenever somebody asks me that, I just, I just started answering, what's your vision? What are you excited about? I mean, what's God telling you to do? What, what do you want to see God do? Because whatever, however all of you answer the question, that's the vision of this church. And it's our job to come, to come behind all of you as you dream and envision and, and just think big about what God might use you to do and to bring all of the resources and all of the, the gifts and all of the people this church has to offer behind every single person in their unique ministry and calling God's given them. That's, that's what the church does. So we have to think differently. We have to change our thinking and expectations. Secondly, we, need to, we have to overcome the obstacles to churching that we've inherited from the culture. And here's where 1 Corinthians 12 comes in and why I included it. And the first obstacle is just this. is the temptation to assign value according to worldly wisdom and not the eyes of faith. Let me ask this question. Who are the really important people in our church? Who are the really important people? And you would probably say the people on the stage on Sundays or team leaders or community group leaders or any of those groups of people, but Paul says that's not right at all. Look at verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 12. He says, the hand cannot say to the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. See, that's not the way it works in the church. Remember what Jesus said about leadership, that greatness is not power or influence, it's serving in the first or last and the last or first, and the church is an upside-down kingdom, and that means we have to redefine value. And so Paul flatly says in 1 Corinthians 12.22, I love it, he says, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. Isn't that great? I mean, there are, sure, there are, there are some parts of the body that will inevitably get the headlines most of the time, but it's a great error to think that the most public people are the most important gifts. And Paul says the exact opposite. He says it's the people you've never heard about, who, who do all the work behind the scenes, who stay late after an event and clean up, who, who get, the, you know, get the kitchen ready, who make copies and stock supplies for kids' worship volunteers on Sunday mornings, who go and sit with people in the hospital and visit the sick or just cook a meal and take it to somebody who you know, needs some companionship. These are the really important people. Those are the really important people. And Paul flatly says, verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. He knows how prone we are to overlook the little acts of service, how infatuated we are with public preachers and worship leaders and people with authority and power. And so he, 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 God, has chosen the nobodies and the least and the last and the overlooked, and he personally greatly honors them. And if that's the way he works, then how should we live? We should do the same thing. We need to celebrate those things too. So the first obstacle is just the temptation to assign value according to worldly wisdom. The second obstacle is this, is to embrace and encourage diversity and not discourage it. You see, Paul goes on to say that diversity is a good thing. He says, verse 17 through 19, in 1 Corinthians 12, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? If all were a single member, where would the body be? Now, what's he mean by that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the most dangerous thing about church and about denominationalism in particular is it's so easy to have a church where everybody looks like everybody else, where everybody believes the same thing as everybody else, where everybody is the same socioeconomic status as everybody else, or the same skin color as everybody else. But what ha- when that happens, Paul says something is lost, and it's easy to begin to marginalize people who are just, quote-unquote, different. 
And so, we are a Presbyterian church. And in our Presbyterian church, where most people are highly educated and highly intelligent and value doctrinal precision and order, we have people who come from a Pentecostal background and have the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And the question is, can we rejoice in those gifts or do we see them as an annoyance? Can we make room for people who think differently than we do, who have different ministry emphasis than we do? If not, Paul says we're in danger of losing our hearing or our sense of smell. We're going to become handicapped and ineffective, he's saying. Do you feel that? Holy, you know. Mark's going crazy up in the balcony. You all right up there, man? Okay, that's my Pentecostal friend in the balcony. He's going nuts. I just want to say diversity is a good thing. Diversity is a good thing. Right? Thank you. <laughs> diversity is a good thing. And, and there are many different parts, the scripture says, but one body. And this is the way God has put the church together. And he's done it this way on purpose. We might be very different. But remember, individually, we're incomplete representations of Jesus. But together, we make a whole person. And so finally, then, we need to change our thinking and expectations, overcome the obstacles to churching that we've inherited, and finally, we just need to get to work. Each of us needs to discover our gifts and get to work. Get to work. And so Paul, at the end of all he has to say about the church and how it is to function, says, and he shows us what that work is, and he says that it is to build ourselves up as a body in love, Ephesians 4.16. And so at the very center of all that Paul says, he calls us and he tells us this is how this is going to happen. And it happens as we live towards one, or, one another in love. And that just means a couple of things. At the very core of our understanding of what love is, is the cross. And so, Paul is very clearly calling us to bear a cross toward one another. So, a couple of things. First, the works of ministry in Ephesians 4.12 are uh, works of deaconing. That word there in Ephesians 4.12, that ministry, the word ministry there is the word diaconus. So, Paul is saying that as we use our gifts to minister to one another, we are deaconing. We are deaconing one another through selfless acts of service for the sake of other people. Uh, these things require radical amounts of sacrifice of time and energy. There's a cross that we have to bear in deaconing one another. But even more so, in what Paul says is the main work to which we're called in verse 15, which is to speak the truth in love, which includes from context the willingness to correct bad theology and rebuke and love one another through words of honesty, to say hard things to one another, but to be for one another, building up the body in love. There's a cross there too. And so this is hard work. And unless the gospel is at the very center of our lives together, we'll never do this well. So we have to source our love for one another in the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And so I want to just end just thinking for the next two minutes about what the gospel is and how it really can shape us into a people who live this way. And in community Bible reading on Tuesday, we're going to read it from Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that Jesus is one. Though he is, if you listen to all the songs we've sung today, he is the exalted one above heaven and earth. Uh, God alone. He is unconquerable, unchangeable. He is the, the high and lifted up above heaven and earth. And yet, we're told in Matthew twenty twenty eight that he is one who came not to be served, but to serve. And the more, that, the more that idea takes root in us, the more it will make us a people who don't come here to be served, but to serve. And I just want to say how hard that is in a consumer culture. We are overrun with the idea that people come into church not to serve, but to be served.
Jim Brownson has this to say. He says, we are trained to see ourselves first and foremost as consumers with needs to be met. Glaringly absent is any understanding of a purpose for human life that extends beyond ourselves and the gratification of our own needs and desires. The problem is not that meeting needs is wrong. It's that when meeting needs moves to the center of our lives, the result is self-absorption and narcissism. You hear that? But listen to what he says. But the gospel sees our humanity not in terms of needs to be met, but in terms of capacities and gifts to be offered in God's gracious service. We are created not to consume, but to know God, not merely to meet our own needs, but to participate in God's life and mission. And so in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relating to one another as the church, here's, here's where you can move towards wholeness. Do you see yourself in your marriage, in your relationship to other believers, in whatever place, do you see yourselves in terms of your needs and your desires or in terms of your capacities and your gifts? Are you here to be served or are you here to serve? You know, there's only one way we can live together as a people committed to dying to self and serving one another and not living in self-pity and self-concern, and that is to tether our hearts to the one who is worthy of all praise and yet became a servant himself. Go to Jesus. Look to him. Take your needs and your desires and your hurts to him and let him serve you. Because only people who've done that, you see, only people who've done that can really give themselves to others in love because doing works of ministry, speaking the truth in love, if you commit yourself, let me just warn you, if you commit yourself to loving and serving other people like that, you're going to get your heart broken by them. They'll disappoint you. They'll let you down. They'll be harsh with you. They'll be ungrateful. They'll get mad at you when you're truthful with them. There's only one person who will never disappoint you or let you down, and that's Jesus. And you see, I really believe that's why the church is not working. People walk into the church and look to the church or the pastor or the staff or other people to provide for their emotional and relational needs and they forget that the church is full of sinners and that there's only one Savior and His name is Jesus. He is the eternal Son of God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who holds the universe in His hands and governs history for the sake of His people and He has come as one who serves. He washes feet. He loves you perfectly. He gave up everything to meet your needs. Look to Him. Let him serve you. Let him fill up the empty places in your heart. And then go and serve. Do the works of ministry in his name. Speak the truth in love. Use your gifts. Be the body to build up the other parts of the body so that those who don't know him might come to know him. You see, a church full of that kind of person can change a city. And that's what we're here to do. And so let's pray to that end. Uh, Father, thank you, for the, thank you for the provision of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he could have come and demanded from us our praise and our allegiance. He could have come and demanded that we kiss his ring and bow and prostrate ourselves before him to acknowledge his lordship and his greatness, but he did not come like that. He came and he washed dirty feet. And he has told us uh, we, are, we are under no... Um, delusion that it's very clear in the scripture that you have said that those who are the greatest are not those who have authority and who have power and who have influence. Those who are the greatest are are those who, like little children, um, think little of themselves and think enough of you to give their entire lives to the work of humbly serving other people. And so we ask Jesus that you would, as you promised in these scriptures, to give us the spirit Send the Spirit in our midst and, and furnish us, this church, with all the gifts of your Spirit. And may we work together as a body of people, all 
working and joined together and every part working properly that we might be built up to unity, uh, to deep theological robustness, to a compelling Christ-likeness, and that we would have fortitude so that when the waves come, we would not be put off. And that we pray you would do all of these things in our midst for the sake of your glory, that we might bear much fruit. And we pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. What a great opportunity just to meditate on uh, the truth of the gospel. So, um, it's very clear from Paul in these passages that the issue of the church's spiritual maturity is a matter of each part functioning properly. And that means that the teachers and the pastors and the leaders have to function properly as well. And that means we have to have the right people in those positions, which is a solemn duty on the part of the church. And so in the coming weeks, we are going to, now that we've done this series, we're going to be um, nominating and, uh, and kind of beginning to train men towards the offices of elder and deacon. And it is, your, it is your responsibility as a congregation, those of you who are officially members of this church, to do that. And I just want you to, I want you to be thoughtful and prayerful about what a solemn duty that is. And so I'm going to do something weird. Uh, I'm going to ask you for the next two Fridays to, in whatever way the Spirit would lead you, to fast and pray about that. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna call, I'm calling the church to a fast on the next two Fridays to consider. You're going to get a letter from me this week about how to do that. But just publicly, I wanted to call us as a church to that. And I realize that everybody can't do that the same. Uh, but whatever way you're able to do that, I really want to call us to a serious approach to these things. Okay? Uh, so even as we do that, remember, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so we look to him to provide all that we need as a body. And that is... That is exactly what is promised to us in the words of of this benediction, that through the work of Christ, we now have the Father's favor and the Father's smile. And so, uh, whether you are a foot or a hand or a head or a fingernail or whatever you might be in the body of Christ, look to him and receive this promise and this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.